met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to another episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, General Lee. And for tonight's podcast in attendance, um, we'll be merging with the host and creator of the Meta Mindcast, Sir Robbie Matt. Now then, Robbie, me. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? Oh, we're good, mate. We're good. Uh, right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight's guest needs no introduction whatsoever. Um, <laughs> Please welcome uh, Sir Gary Wayne. Uh, now then, Gary. Hey, thank you for inviting me back and uh, so happy oh. to be talking with you and discussing things that hopefully uh, will raise a little bit of curiosity with our audience because that's I'm what we're always trying to do. Sure it will, mate. I'm sure it will. Uh, firstly, it is a true honor to be speaking with you again. Um, I am very lucky indeed that you're on my show again, mate. It's um, it's so surreal sometimes. But you're here, mate. So you're meant to be here, and that's that's the main thing. That's most important to me. Um, I mean, every show we do, Gary, the feedback is um, it's immeasurable, and that's what it's all about. It is. It's about getting information out to people and to all kinds of different audiences because you know i think a lot of people are looking for some answers in this world and they're not easily come by we usually just get sort of the pablum that we're fed in the media and in the entertainment but we don't know what really is being talked about below the surface so that's what we try and get at and then hopefully maybe help people figure out things for themselves because you know we we're all here trying to make decisions about those things and we need the information to be able to decide for ourselves yeah yeah uh, i mean there's always a choice in now on what uh, on what direction you can you look into things and i think that's what makes it so fascinating the variety yeah for sure um well gary uh, one of our listeners carolyn has asked us uh, well it has asked you um, if you're familiar with, um, I'll read. I'll read the message out to you, mate. It's, um, are you? Do you know what a vessel of wrath that is fitted for destruction is? Um, this is mentioned in Romans nine twenty-two in the Bible. Yeah, um, it's it, it's it's a very interesting uh, verse, and well, actually, set of verses that are in there. All right, okay. And one of the things that the Bible does, if somebody is diligent to do the the work to dig it out is that 
even though there's a lot of what I call allegory and prophetic allegory that's in the Bible, it self-defines itself. So you could read that word vessel if you didn't really sort of understand the context or, or the meaning. You could take that into several different meanings, what a vessel of wrath is. Like you could take it from yeah. a, to, a, to a false prophet. You could take it to a destroyer angel. You could do it to weaponry. You could do to all sorts of different things. Really? Yeah, because it's just that wide open of what is a vessel. A vessel holds something, right? Yeah. But you have to look at the context. And it's not that all of those meanings may not be in the background. It's just not the central part to the definition of what's being talked about as a vessel. So if you look at the verse just uh, before in 921, it's talking about the potter. And the potter generally makes vessels, bowls, goblets of things yeah. of things in the past to hold things. So when it's talking about a vessel of wrath, this is uh, a defining allegory for people in to understand sort of the literal nature to the prophet, prophetic allegory, if I can put it that way, because when you get into the wrath bowls in Revelation 16, they're being poured out. And the Old Testament links perfectly with passages about pouring out the wrath of God in the year of the Lord's wrath or in the day of the Lord's wrath, day and year. They're both used and they're interchangeably for the same meaning as the year of the Lord's wrath, which is the year that leads up to Armageddon in the last seven years. So these are the wrath bowls that are being poured out. So when we're talking about false prophets, false prophets are in the end time. When we're talking about a destroyer angel like Shiva or Azazel, Abad and Apollyon, they're in there. If we're talking about weaponry that's going to create an apocalypse by fire, that's right. all part of the, the wrath bowls that are going to be poured out. But it's not specifically, I don't think in my understanding of that passage, specifically pointing to any one of those. It's just that we need yeah. to look to the wrath bowls and the year of the Lord's wrath to understand the horrors that will come in that year. Gary, Jesus. Could it, I saw, for me, I mean, you've just explained it brilliantly, but could it be uh, any reference to some sort of grail? Well, sure, because a grail is part of the whole... It's a chalice, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, a grail is that vessel that could be used, and, and it, some people would actually translate that as a vessel instead of a bowl. And the right. grail is, is you know, the holy grail, right? You have that yeah, sort of yeah. allegory, but that's also understood as a chalice or a bowl as you take it back more into ancient Scythian sort of history. Um, and so the grail is also a bloodline, right? As it's also <laughs> understood. So it's the, it's the uh, song grail or the song real and the song grawl. They actually have three different... On uh, I can't really call it an entendre. It's probably a, a, a quadruple entendre in terms of the layers <laughs> that the, the occult has in it. And so within that, you could link in Antichrist as being sort of the leader of the vessel of the wrath bulls because he's ah. the one who, cre who creates the abomination by crowning himself king in the temple at the midpoint of the last years that brings along... That's called the abomination that leads to desolation, which is Armageddon. So, again, it's just 
But what what one wants to do when they're doing, in my opinion, what one wants to do when looking at prophecy is to not get overreach on it, not to get too far over your skis. So what I try and do is I try and put things into context and I try not to leave out inconvenient passages because that's what a lot of people do. And it all has to fit perfectly, which again, that's why people tend to leave out inconvenient passages because it doesn't fit perhaps their preconceived conclusions. So, but just because that may not necessarily be translated or interpreted as a antichrist type figure, a false prophet type of figure, doesn't mean it isn't linked, right? And because yeah. all of those figures are in the end time. Wow. <laughs> uh, could this at all be linked to some sort of uh, air quotes, moon child. Hmm. Well, a moon child has a lot of different connotations. Um, and uh, there's an interesting book out that I think sort of ties a lot of things together, although who knows the accuracy of it. It's a yeah. book called The uh, Lost uh, uh, Book of King Og. And, Lost Book uh, of King Og. Yeah, and it's uh, put out by an author, not an author, but a author translator named Demon, and you know very close to the word demon d-e-m-m-o-n <laughs> and um like plato's daemon yeah yeah daemon yeah, right, absolutely. Okay. yeah and uh, it's part of a series of books what they call the manichaean book of giants and according to his byline is is a i think it's a, pre, a jesuit priest but it's a priest from the vatican um you know, supplied the information and supplied the translation and he put it put it into a, a book and he's got a couple other books out there. And the Manichaean book of giants is sort of the Persian influence of the Enochian book of giants. Mm. So it has, a, you know, a little bit more detail to it because it's a little bit more complete and it's got a few different names and it's got some Persian additions into it. But it's, it's uh, sort of the combining of the Dead Sea Scrolls of uh, the Enochian Book of Giants through an individual called Manny who created Manichaeism that sort of linked the Eastern religions into his form of Gnosticism and it was kind of blended in his time. So that's sort of the history of the book. Now in that book, it talks about King Og, who's a Raphaim, and uh, he's got a wife named Latesta, as I recall. Yeah, Latesta. And they're having infertility issues because um, they are the terrible ones, right? As the Bible calls them. And the terrible ones are the Eretz or the Retim, as you would say, take that to the plural. And they're like, Kings like Nebuchadnezzar as 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 uh, descendants as uh, he's called a terrible one or the terrible ones that are in the book of Ezekiel 32 who are talking to Pharaoh in that prophecy from the sides of the abyss. So we're getting weird pretty quick here, but yeah. I'm going to get to the point. <laughs> and they're communicating with him, and these are the terrible ones that were slain on Earth for the horrible things they were doing to humankind, right? So these are Nephilim, Raphaim, demon spirits that are in the sides of, uh, 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 of the abyss. So this, and so these are the terrible ones, and they have, as their definition comes out of 
Hebrew and Strong's Concordance as it, uh, Strong's Dictionary, I should say, that also shows up in Strong's Concordance for the Bible, um, takes that back to one of the meanings along with being powerful, giant, strong, all of these wonderful giant sort of terms um, as being infertile and having trouble reproducing. So in the Lost King of Book uh, of, of Og, they're trying to do bring about Baal and Ashtaroth back because they're trying to reproduce. And these, this is a very similar story to the Ugaritic text. We're doing the same things so the same. And that's where the Rephiu are first recorded in, in uh, Semitic RP, uh, I, I, IU with an M for the plural and Rapi. And there's a couple different versions you'll see translated, but it's all the root word for Raphaim. Oh, right. So, you got well, you got the Refa, which were the weakeners, and then you have the Enaim, which were the terrors, and yeah. the Awaim, who were the devastators. And there's a few yeah. other names as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of subgroups in there for sure. And then what's right. also in, interesting in 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 uh, the Ugaritic text, you also have the Datanu, which are the Tawatha the Danan. So it's oh, another right. tie in there. But uh, getting <laughs> trying to stay on 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 track here <laughs> is that uh, in the uh, Lost King, I know I go down so many rabbit holes, I can't help it. I apologize. <laughs> and then they start opening up all these other doors that we can go into. But to stay yeah. on, if I can, please carry on, Gary. We yeah. love it. <laughs> um, so in the in in the book of King Og, uh, they're trying to create a new child, right? Because they're having these infertility issues, and that's the that's the son Ogaya, um, and uh, he's the moon child. And so, uh, right, right. as you understand that, then as we get back to uh, what that sort of means with the Grail and the bloodlines, and with the Antichrist and being a demigod and mm-hmm. Um, being perhaps a descendant of of the giants is that a moon child is either an antichrist type figure or a very powerful uh, prophet that comes out of that wow. belief system. Oh, mate, that is. I agree. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Mate. I find it uh, interesting how much uh, the importance of prophecy um, entails in all these cultures um, and their links to the, uh, you know, the traveler or those, you know, the interlopers between worlds. Yeah, the passengers, the travelers. Um, And uh, again, in the Ugaritic text, it talks about that in great detail, just as the book of King Og talks about being able to go back and forth. Mm. That word uh, traveler um, from a biblical perspective is the Hebrew word abar. And that shows up, uh, A-B-A-R as it's transliterated into English. And uh, it can have a lot of meanings, but one of the meanings is, is to cross over. And cross over, as in cross over from the other side, from another dimension, from oh, the spirit right. world. And it's used in conjunction with that understanding in the book of Job, where you get sort of an initial sort of understanding um, about its usage, although it's not translated accurately in, in the book of in book of Job. But when you get into the book of Ezekiel in chapters 39, where it's talking about the end time Gog War, 
and these princes and these kings who are like the uh, fatlings of Bashan and you get all of these sort of connections back to Mount Hermon and the bloodlines is after the war you have these travelers that are coming back sometimes and some English versions say passengers and that goes back to the Hebrew word abar again and so that's thought to be the the you know the nephilim or the spirits that are going that have the ability to go back between um, the underworld and earth so in the ugaritic text you have these raphaim that um, they go back and forth during the funeral text both demons and ones that are still living but in other parts of the ugaritic text they can go into the underworld because they have either the technology the passwords or the portals to be able to do so right it is beyond fascinating to hear all these possibilities go well, when you start making those sort of triangulations from a few different sections, um, all of a sudden you're sort of cast into this netherworld. Well, how how can different uh, books, different religions be talking about the same thing? And there and not be a, a legitimacy to what's being recorded. Yeah, they, they systemically do. Um, essentially talk about the same thing and these these interloping spirits and um, yeah and and that uh, is used as far as the prophecy itself being used to direct society of the time you know it, it is and what's interesting also about that book of King Ong King Ong it has a lot of very similar prophecy that's embedded into it which is either a sort of polytheist sort of version or a counterfeiting of the biblical one. I'll leave that up to mm. people to decide on that. Um, but it, it it sort of overlays, it, it's talking about the same prophecies. They almost have the same exact same language, just that they're sort of inserting the influence of the mm. offspring of the giants into those That's prophecies, great. which Perfect. I don't necessarily disagree with. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find it interesting going through a lot of these texts. Um, it depends on the perspective of the writer in regard to which side um, the argument lays. Um, and oh, yeah. you, you oftentimes, you know, find that they do um, almost like transparencies overlay one another. They do. Well, and, and when you factor in that, you know, b- between, let's boil it down to sort of monotheism and polytheism. Uh, as two large buckets, um, it's good versus evil, and depending on which side you're on, mm. who is good and who is evil, that's where yeah. it gets really sort of interesting, right? And even within polytheism, in the micro level, as opposed to that macro dualism, you have good versus evil within polytheism. Oh, yeah. So you've got like good giants and bad giants. You've got yep. white magic and black magic you've got good yeah, witches yeah. and evil witches and, and it's just sort of constitutive in 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 polytheism so uh you have to understand that and it gets very confusing that's why i encourage people to make their own decisions and do their own research because both sides can't be right so and sure. and, and and there's no neutral position on it in right. either side's account in terms of how the outcome is right so you should make your own decision and then you know if if, and and that's all the all you can do in life is is research and and decide what do i think is true 
And as you go through that, if you start to get into this in a, in a way which I would encourage people, you start to say, hey, well, what are these so-called seculars? Where do they fit in? Mm. And that's when it really gets interesting when you find out that that's just superficial pablum uh, right. in preparation for the rendezvous with destiny. I love that rendezvous with destiny, Gary. That's well put. That's well put. Uh, Gary, um, thank you very much for that. That was um, a brilliant explanation. Didn't expect that myself, uh, and I'm sure Carolyn will be made up with um, with your perspective. And uh, if she has any more questions on prophecy or things like that, just she can get a hold of me through my website. It may take me a while to get back to her, but I will get back to her if she has a question on it or if she wants some more information. Oh, brilliant, mate. It's been made up with that. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Gary, I know we briefly um, discussed what we'd like to go into today, um, and that is the Upia, which is... Um, it's the, a fascinating law. Uh, I, I'm not correct to assume it. Is it, does it hail from Slavic law, the, the mythology? It's it's in part rooted in Slavic, um, and it's very prominent in Slavic sort of history. But it's older than that. So it's older it has, than that. It's older oh, than that. Brilliant. You know. Uh, as 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 all things are. So, <laughs> uh, so so would you would you be kind enough to maybe take us right back to where it, it begins? Sure. So if Please. people aren't familiar with what an upier is, um, on it, it has a couple different meanings, but they're directly related. But sort of out of the Slavian. Romanian, Transylvanian aspect in many other um, areas as well. And Upir were known as night operative vampires or night witches. Night so that were, yeah. And that would um, suck blood. So Vlad the Impaler is transformed into Dracula as an Upir. And Vlad the Impaler, as we've talked about in past shows, takes his bloodlines yeah, back to the Scythians through the Agrathi tribe and back to um, Hercules as one of uh, the tribes that Hercules spawned and all the way back to Kazadea and or uh, Tam, uh, Tamiel, which he's also known as. So there's a connection here that just to sort of make people aware of that, it's also a kingship title. So it's a kingship title. So if people have heard the word overlord, Upier is a is sort of a root word. Uh, well, it's an off. Uh, let me back up on that. Upier is not the root word, but it's an offshoot word of a source word, just as overlord comes out of the same word. So when we're talking about the the source word, it's a system. Scythian source word. So again, you start to see why some of those uh, literature um, plays start to intersect with with uh, Vlad the Impaler being bloodlines of the Scythian. So the root Scythian word or Alain or Sarmatian word, they're all basically different tribes of the of the Scythians or the Sumerians and 
many different tribes of them, um, but and the Amazons are part of the same tribes as well. Uh, it was not only was it Upir a tradition of the of a vampire back then, but also the root word is Upper U P E R as it's transliterated into English, and so that was then translated. In Germany, that becomes Uber. I yes, it does. Right, it does. Right. That's another transliteration as being the Tuatha Danan, uh, Danan. They migrated up into Germany and into uh, Norway as well, right? In that's Sweden. Right. So you have that tradition sort of coming up. There's also a word that's called Oberon. Mm. Oberon. That, Oberon is another transliteration of Upier. So Oberon... If people aren't familiar with that, and I think they will when I remind them of that, is the king of the fairies right. uh, in Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night Dream. And his wife is Titania, which is a female <laughs> titan. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't really make this up. And wow. <laughs> so... Scythian is Indo-Aryan or Indo-European in its original language. So Aryan is Ubar uh, with the U-B-A-R and the same one that's used in Germany um, that was just pointed out. And it also extended another word as you get from Uber or Uper or Upier to Oberon and over Overlord is Oberon is a transliteration of Overrain or Overlord. So you have this long sort of etymology that's connecting it back. And in the uh, LBGens of the uh, of the Elven fairies of the Tuatha de Danan, um, LBGens as in this pale white. Uh, perhaps uh, Albin or Albion patriarch, and also a matriarch of a similar name that they take their bloodlines back to in the Elven fairy culture, the Elven bloodlines of the Tuatha de Danan and the Gnostic uh, Cathars and Elbigensians. Um, this is all uh, connected into the Grail and Ring race, as well as the Teutonic order of Ober, O B E R. So. O-B-E-R in the Teutonic order of knights and things. It has the same, just different transliterations, right? But the uh, the uh, the Oberon out of the Tuatha de Danan um, aspect is, is, is kind of important because uh, we look at these overlords, these Oberons, as the area... Shea, as the Tuatha de Danan also call themselves, and the Duan Shea, with the sort of the mix of Diana uh, mm. as a mix in as, as part of that mother goddess, they were the overlords of the Tuatha de Danan, and they were known as dragon kings and elven right. queens, and they were the overlords. Dragon kings and elven queens. Yes. And of course, you have Dracula as Dracula, son of a dragon. As you take that <laughs> back in its meaning, right? It's, you, you, again, you can't make this up, and it's too. You can't have these types of coincidences unless there's a strong tradition. <laughs> of what's being talked about here, and with the Scythians, they were known known also as the horse lords and overlords of the horse, and they were the masters of the horses and the chariots. So it's partly where it comes from, 
And they also migrated south, as we've talked about in past shows, not only into the Covenant land, but also into Mesopotamia. So they were known as the Anunnaki overlords of the Tuatha Danu, or the tribe of Danu. And it also shows up as a title into the royal families through sort of Archduke. And Duke sort of goes, goes back to what we've talked about. There's the uh, Aleph kings out of uh, Genesis 36. These are the, uh, the, the chiefs of Edom and the dukes of Edom and the dukes of uh, Seir and the Horim, uh, pale white red-haired giants. And so that's the word Aleph, which they sort of, draft into the elven mythos of the of the kingship line as well and uh that is what an archduke is is they are an overlord of the royal bloodline right they are very they're not king but they're right there in that senior level and uh they are overlords not only unto the people but unto themselves and not restricted to the laws that they impose on the people because they are superior beings. Hmm. Right. Gary, would these be um, Oberon? Yes. Brilliant. Thank you. So uh, now, as far as this ritual you know, blood practice and, and the vampirism, um, I'm kind of under the understanding that if you go back far enough, that this was um, almost like the fairy queen idea where the fairy king had to fall in love um, with the fairy queen. And it was a give, it was the blood was given freely and it had to do with the idea of starfire and menstruation. Yes. And then at a certain point, um, you know, the, the text say when the starfire essentially withdrew that the practice got turned from this positive enlightening experience into this um, darker blood ritual um, that leads into a lot of the phenomena that conspiracy theorists talk about now. Yeah, and also to do with when you talk about the menstrual cycle, the moon cycle. Yes. Very closely related to that. And starfire was this sort of divine essence that they would exchange and drink and drink with different concoctions as well yes. in these rituals that would provide extended life and better yep. um, mental capacities and things and healing yes. things and, and perhaps some of the powers in exchange, almost like a different kind of ennobling of the bloodline that they believe right. by ingesting yeah. it would sort of inter, intermix with, it, with, with its powers. So this starfire is uh, also connected into the ancient understanding of blood drinking that goes back to the Rephaim and back to the Nephilim before the flood, where they would drink the blood of other beings to extend their lives and, in, in, and increase their mental capacities. So you have this strong sort of connection. Now here's where it connects back in through that same mythos, as uh, you, you look at uh, the meaning of that sort of night operative uh, word of, of, of the vampires. So these were generally night sort of demons, as you would understand them um, in that in that kind of mythos. So um, <clears throat> you have uh, in Romanian, you have a word called strigoi um, that means witch and popular use for a vampire and that it's derived... very interesting you mentioned that that then gary sorry to interrupt just a quick one here uh, there's a, a television program uh, i forget what channel it's on and it's called the strain 
and there mm-hmm. is a strain of vampires called the strigoi yeah 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 they, oh, yeah. they use they yeah they use these all throughout their <laughs> their stories and their history and stuff so just yeah it's, it's it, when you start to hear the accuracy of what they're talking about they're talking in in their entertainment and their stories they're what they're putting in there is is part of their history part of their belief system and a lot of allegories that sort of connect you to the true meaning of, of what what the story is talking about yeah. so that was Latin word comes out of uh, from Strix, S-T-R-I-X, and that means a screech owl. Screech owl. Mm, it's just yeah. a Lilith. It's just it's a Lilith. A Lilith. Type of... Yeah. So <laughs> Isaiah 34, um, you've got uh, the the screech owl, which is the Hebrew word a Lilith, uh, transliterated mm. as a Lilith, a Lilith as it comes out of uh, out of Hebrew, and understood as a night witch. And an upier, and of course that Lilith comes back of itself to the upier again, doesn't it, mate? It does, and and Lilith uh, was was a screech owl and an unclean demon that hopped like a dog, almost or right. like a like a goat, so uh, almost like a degraded sort of being. And Lilith was originally a mother goddess, uh, and married to a father goddess in in sumerian tradition that was lost their position right Right, so very right and lilith also another uh mythology is is a daughter of uh, tiamat and apsu so there's a couple different variations but whatever she is it's either a fallen angel god or a demon or a degraded fallen angel to look like you know similar to what a watcher would be degraded to a satyr status In in Persian culture, um, they talk about the idea that the owl or the screech owl was the creature that was one too many, um, that was basically an abomination after the creation, and that it it, uh, basically was blinded by the true light of the day, and it could only see in the dark, and it was, so it had this this idea of being almost a a demonic creature, like similar to uh, Lilith, essentially. Right. And exactly. Yeah. And and, in other parts of Sumerian lore, uh, Lilith was uh, descended from Tiamat that I talked about. What's important about that is Tiamat is a serpent. And so Lilith was like a seraphim uh, degraded. And again, you have all of that serpentine imagery that's overlaid in the Dracula yeah. narrative with son of a dragon, right? So the old, old Draconis, yeah. well, and, and you get into the serpent and the bird, uh, depending on yes. the culture. Yeah. 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 And, and a bird is, you know, has wings as an angel has in wings, right? Yeah. So, and whether or not they've been degraded or not, they still have wings. Mm. So, um, uh, <laughs> So it starts uh, to make sort of some connections that in that sort of way. Gary, uh, uh, so, am I uh, correct or am I not correct to assume that uh, Lilith was the first wife of Adam? Well, uh, that was added into the Kabbalistic side of Judaism. Right, okay. Right, and that was added in, in, in the time of judah being exiled by king nebuchadnezzar uh, into babylon for about 70 years and so that's when you see that sort of surfacing so it's a newer sort of mythos that's overlaid 
Now, right. Lilith is a consort of different gods and things. Like, again, in, in, in Kabbalism, you also have her raised to being a consort of Samael, right, uh, right. Lord of Sama, which is thought to be either Anki or Satan, depending on how high you want to raise Samael to. And there's different versions on both. So that's when that sort of surfaces. It's the Sumerian ones and the Greek traditions that are older that I I I tend to put a little bit more emphasis on. So, and it doesn't mean that Lilith wasn't around and you know causing trouble with Adam and Eve, but uh, <laughs> when but when you get into the idea that uh, Adam was having sex with. Uh, uh, a goddess of some sort or a demon or yeah. a fallen god um, that would probably indicate a bloodline of giants coming from there. And I, I can't make enough sort of other connections to say that that happens. Typically, when you get a mythos about a bloodline coming out of Adam and Eve, it's usually through Eve and Samael or Satan or other angels, as the Gnostics talk about, and that would be their offspring Cain that they then adopt into that whole Sumerian sort of mythos again, and sort of there's a blending in here because Lula Lilith is the daughter of Lilith who marries Cain in in the... He was that, right? He said that. So, what's that? Who was that again? Who was that? Sorry again, uh, Gary. Did you okay, say Lilo? So Lula Lilith. Lulu. Lula. L-U-L-U Lilith. Lula Lilith. Lulu is the daughter of Lilith, and she is said to be in, in a lot of Gnostic and Sumerian uh, understanding to, to be the wife of Cain. Mm. Cain and is in Cain. Cain is in Son of Adam and Eve, yes. Oh, Cain and Abel, yeah. 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 Actually. So yeah, you get that sort of intermixing in, and you know, I, you know, I'm 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 open to all of that. I just can't get enough material to substantiate it. So it's interesting, and I keep it in mind. But I don't know whether or not that's the case or not. But that's the mythos that sort of comes out of the bloodline of Cain, which was preparing them in that sort of mythos to provide the daughters to the sons of God to create the, the Nephilim in Genesis six. Mm. So. Sticking with Lilith a little bit more um, is is that Lilith is not only a screech old and an unclean spirit that hops like a goat and a night demon, just as the Upiers are. So you have this this night operative thing that is they had an affliction to the sunlight. They were so you saw the same thing sort of uh, occur with uh, Vlad the Impaler. Um, the Dracula in, individual, he was so pale skinned, right? And hazel eyes and red hair, typical uh, noble Celt sort of mm-hmm. characteristics. And of course, the vampire cobra teeth for that serpentine aspect as well to be put back into him to, to suck the blood with. But he had a affliction to sunlight. He was very sensitive. So he typically would only come out at night. Now, there's another... Uh, Hebrew tradition uh, of what a night witch is, and that's called Alamia. Mm. And Alamia. In that Alamia. And it was a half woman and half serpent in Hebrew lore and in other um, Mesopotamian lore. And this was a blood sucking demon 
and known as a female upier. Hmm. And it flew at night like a screech owl uh, and like in Greek mythology. And I'll, I'm going to come back to that in a second. And she was a killer of infants and uh, uh, took children for child sacrifice is why she was known as a uh, child killer. And she held the matrilinear inheritance to Malkut back to Tiamat in the elven dragon bloodline. So she's one of the originating bloodlines of, of, of the dragon and elven bloodline. And um, when you take that now back into where does Lamia show up in other cultures, it shows up in the Greek mythology. And you have Zeus, who is the father of Hercules, that as part of the Agrathy tribe that produced Dracula. Yeah, yeah, right. uh, wow. And, and that that line of the Tutankhamun basically came down from the Carpathian region into the Greek region, if I'm correct. Yes, it, they yes. did. Yep, yep. And uh, so you have this Sibylle, who's a, a, a Phrygian, but also known as a daughter of Zeus. And I don't know where... Another goddess named Lamia. And Lamia. Yeah. So, and, and, and Lamia has in Greek mythology the same sort of traits as Lilith. And so Lamia wow. was Lamia was the daughter of Poseidon. And of course, Poseidon is the Poseidon. is the is the sea god that marries uh Clido to produce the twelve Nephilim kings of Atlantis. Right. Wow. And uh, Lamia uh, in Greek was also known as uh, as a title for a night witch as well. Could be just a coincidence, Gary. Yeah, it's all coincidental. It's yeah. <laughs> well, and there's also the Hebrew stories of uh, Lilith's sister, um, who's Lilith's also sister? a blood, blood sucker as well. Yeah. Yeah. What what's uh, what's her name, mate? Please. Oh, I don't recall offhand. I just remember, but okay, she thanks. basically okay. it, it has to do with um, you know if a man is uh, unvirtuous towards his wife and she basically destroys the marriage and and sucks him dry. Yeah, was that Lanashtu? La, La yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times Lanashtu is um, conflated with with Lilith, and uh, yeah. obviously from the same sort of group of beings, but. Had a very hairy body, as I understood, sucked blood. Um, uh, they would provide uh, very disturbing nightmares to people and get in your heads in that. And so, sorry, gentlemen, sorry. Did you just say uh, she had a hairy body? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to admit She, uh, maybe uh, a Sasquatch, possibly, do you think? Blood-sucking Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, there, there are, you know, I mean, we don't almost know. Almost along the lines of an incubus or a succubus. Yes. Seems. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I was sort of going to uh, suggest that, that um, the incubus and the succubus come from the uh, uh, male and female of this mythos, right? So. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 you may, yeah. Uh, see, you know, there's a possibility, I guess. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, if I was, um, and I can't remember the names off the top of my head, I'd have to go check my notes. But if I were to pick a god or a goddess that was um, most likely to be the procreator for the Sasquatch, uh, mm. noting that it's not as big as the Nephilim, there's a couple of uh, ape gods and monkey gods in Chinese oh, and Hindu pantheon that would fit that that sort of bill and in other words that you know to to create yeah offspring you have to create yourself a physical body and if you create a physical body you're going to create dna that would be passed on and they would look similar to that offspring which is sort of again at the heart of the vampire tales when they're connected to dragons and snakes and things like that because the watchers that produced uh, most of the giant offspring were seraphim, and they were serpent-faced, six-winged angels. They were, uh, you know, heavenly dragons, and so they would have produced serpentine offspring that looked just like them, and lo and behold, all around the world, you have gods depicted as as dragons, whether it's uh, Quetzalcoatl, whether or not it's the Nagas, whether or not it's the dragon creator gods, all you know, all the original Greek ones for the most part were seraphim. There's a few other ones in there as well. Same with the the, the Egyptian and the Greek also were uh, serpentine, Anki, Anlil, Tiamat. I mean, the serpentine imagery is there. And then you get the kings as their offspring were depicted as serpents as well. Right. Ah, okay. Were these seraphim? Were they the what? Did they say they were the the fiery serpents? Is that yes? Right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, there's a, there's an archaeological site, I believe it's in Iran somewhere, where they found all these clay figurines, and um, some of the figures um, actually had serpentine heads, and um, you know, basically possibly documenting some of these creatures. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and and uh, I mean, you get images all over the world of these, and they're sure. all describing the same uh, type of being. So in that snake imagery, though, I think you you might like this sort of connection as it connects back to the uh, agressy of the tribe of Dracula that he takes his uh, genealogy back to. So agressy, who is the patriarch in his tribe is eponymously named after him, was the son of Hercules, as I mentioned earlier but i did not say who the wife was the wife was echidna e-c-h-i-d-n-a echidna uh and she was a half woman and half Mm. snake and hercules son of zeus also (laughs) depicted as a snake was probably snake-like so you get this snake imagery that goes right down through through history and all these hero types I, are associated with it in this dragon bloodline. Yeah. 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 It is just so, so incredible. Um, I've got one one question. I'm not sure. I might have mentioned this before to you, Gary. I might have mentioned yep. it to you as well, Robert. Are you mm. familiar with um, an Iliad? It's spelled E-L-I-O-U-D. Hmm. And from what I'm led to believe, they are uh, some sort of uh, 
Nephilim offspring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. They're meant to be depicted to be her. Um, I'm thinking, do you think this could be Sasquatch related? Um, it's it. You know, it sounds more like a hybrid to me, but not Sasquatch related. Right. Okay. Really. I do find it interesting, it. like when you you have the character of Gilgamesh and uh, In- Enkidu, um, he is, you know, said to have had, uh, you know, matted hair all over his whole body. Um, he was basically some sort of a creation. Um, and when he died, you know, the, the worm fell out of his uh, ear. So there's almost like uh, the creation of these life forms as vessels almost uh, for, you know, certain types of entities to enter into. Yeah. And also remember Nephilim and Raphim were very hairy, whether or not they were dark haired ones, they had lots of hair, whether or not they were blonde or red hair. So when you look at that word Elio, that's L trying to remember E L J O. Um, and also known as Eli Ud, so E L I O U D, that shows up in the Book of Jubilees. Book of Jubilees. In the Book of Jubilees, yeah. Um, that's the only place that I've kind of found it. Um, and what they were, as you said, they were um, uh, giants that uh, created another form of giant through interbreeding and that was done through uh, humans as, as you get the Jubilees account. So they're the hybrid humans, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about hybrid giant humans, and this is after the flood, right. uh, doesn't mean that they didn't do it before, but they didn't have the same reproductive issues that we talked about earlier in the show. So oh, they, yeah, yeah. Right. But after the flood, uh, these giants, which are generally thought to be a little bit smaller than the original Nephilim. These are the Rephaim I'm talking about now. They uh, needed to continue to reproduce. So they had to intermarry with humans for the most part. Right. And now it doesn't mean that they couldn't have done something with another animal, but it's tough to reproduce unless you have more powers. There takes more powers than just trying to have sex with a, with a, an ape or something to do that, right? It sounds so, so wrong, don't it? <laughs> I know. I was wondering how to say that. I couldn't come up with a better way. But they did intermarry with humans to create the patriarchless Canaanites. So when you have like uh, the Amorites or the Jebusites or the Hivites or all the different nine that are patriarchless, their patriarchs were a Rephaim. That's why the names aren't there. And then also you would have had Heth and Sidon and Canaan and their descendants would have been intermarrying with the giants as well to create the hybrids. And they were sort of very well known as being, let's say, six to nine feet tall uh, as being hybrid. Yeah. As opposed to being, uh, you know, nine to uh, biblically, we'll say 14 or 15 feet tall with King Og and um, and Goliath in between at about 11 feet tall. Uh, And of course, Gilgamesh, who's a dark haired giant is um, 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. So he's the king of Uruk. So he'd be measured not on 18 inches, but as on a royal cubit, which would be 21 inches. He would have been just over 19 feet tall and wow. seven feet wide. Uh, uh, sorry, Gary. Which, which king was that again then? Sorry. Uruk. 
I mean, uh, Gilgamesh of Uruk. Not to be confused with the Gilgamesh before the flood that's talked about in the Book of Giants that we talked about. He's created after the flood uh, by his father is Lugalbanda of uh, Uruk and his mother is a mother goddess named Nin and Nin Sun with a, an additional uh, title um, put on in, in the second suffix, depending on the trans translation that, that you're reading. So, yeah, so... I, th I think they did intermarry, but I'm not convinced they produced um, the the Sasquatch and mm. wow, and okay. their and their hair color is wrong. But that doesn't mean they couldn't have had the same, you know, picked up more of the DNA from whatever animal they would have reproduced to do it. But it just seems to me that that sort of nature tends in in the mythos on the, on the Nephilim and Rephilim as to what they looked like. Their appearance appeared to be from the God side of the uh, of the of the creative matches. So. Mm. And so like and for another example, you know, people are saying, well, where do a lot of these other types of giants come from, um, like uh, the lion men or the uh, Tengu, the Tengu, which are the bird faced Nephilim. Mm. Um, and uh, would, like and, an e would that be like the eagle face ones? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right and on. uh, what about these dark haired Gilgamesh giants versus the blonde hair? And like, why different hair color? Um, I think, and uh, if I do a, a third book on, on, on giants at all, I'll put all of this in, in that book. But I think they're from the Cherubim um, sure. watchers. Mm. They, and if you look four, at, they got four faces, the cherub. They do, but when they oh. show up on Earth, they take one face, right? right? So you see cherubs and things like that. You see a bull face, which is one of their faces on 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 these so, types of sphinxes. You have a lion's so, face, you have a human's so face, and you have bull, an eagle's bull face. face. Bull face, lion, eagle, and what was mm. the other one? A human. Yeah. And so when you see the Anunnaki depictions in Sumeria, you see these winged beings. Some have a human right. face and some have an eagle or a falcon face, right? right. So when they take a, a physical body on Earth, they choose the face. So mm. let's say if they chose an eagle face, they would create the Tengu giants or the Zababa giants uh, in the house of Kamazots, which is the house of bats. And if you Google that, you can see a picture on the internet that looks a lot like Batman because these were giant demigods. Yeah, yeah, of, we've mentioned that before. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and so if you very familiar. Yeah, and then you have uh, the lion men of Moab and Gad, and all of these lion Ermohalu and Sumerian, and all of these other ones. I won't go through all the different names on reliefs in in Egypt that have a lion face, right? Um, now, and so, um, what about in um, in uh, Crete with King Minos and the uh, yeah, the they're dark haired. Well, yeah. but you had the uh, bull headed, um, oh, the know, minotaur, -head, the minotaur that would eat the, the children, the quinotaur. yeah. Oh, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So, all of a sudden, it starts to make a little bit more sense that those would be that kind of offspring. And the dark haired ones, like uh, King Minos, because he was a Aryan, um, Tuatha de Danan king. Uh, at least related, at least part of the four Indo-Aryan groups. I think that that dark hair probably comes from the the human face of the cherubim that would have been dark haired versus the lighter hair color. So it starts to 
it starts to answer some of those questions. And then when you look at the dog people, I haven't quite figured out which angel would be where Anubis mm -hmm. comes from, but he's a jackal god right. and he creates, uh, you know, a whole race of dog warriors. Mm, um, right. And in a city called Sinopolis, which is basically says means dog city in Egypt. And you get all of these dog Nephilim all throughout uh, the ancient world and even into Canadian or not Canadian into Christian. Um, well, and even uh, now in stories Indian. with the Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, you see a lot of these people that have, uh, you know, uh, faces that are fully um, covered with hair. So it almost makes you wonder if there's some genetic link back. Hey, mate, he's just don't know, dear. It's a possibility. Yeah. It is a possibility for sure. Uh, Sorry, I don't know what's more fascinating, eh, mate. It is just. It, it it just doesn't stop at at one one entity. There's that many different. Uh, I mean, like you say, Gary, there you've got the yeah. cherubim. Potentially, they could use four faces. Yeah. And those were related to the four directions, um, and the watchtowers, yeah. and yeah. keeping out the energies of Corazon. And um, yeah, it, it's definitely interesting. The, what what do they call them? The living um, beings. Mm -hmm. the four living yeah. beings right, yeah right. and and those four living beings. those four living beings that are in the book of revelation uh it's not the true technically the cherubim or the ophanim which are the they have four faces as well one is different one of the faces is a face of a cherubim that's in there they're the wheel angels of the watchers that are i was just gonna say though, is that is it like it looks like a wheel within a wheel and it's got all yeah. eyes along yeah yeah yeah, and that's Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10, where you, you're going to see that. And that when you see the word wheel, it's talking about the being that goes back to the Hebrew word ophan. I am is the male plural, that's the ophanim. When it's just talking about the, 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 the wheel part, as opposed to the being, it goes back to the Hebrew word Gilgal, which also means wheel, as in Raphaim, or Gilgal Raphaim, the wheel of the giants that's at the right, foot of right. Mount Hermon, but that's another story. Um, so you have the Ophanim that are a little bit different individual. And so they're the throne angels. Um, and the cherubim, they're like depicted as pulling the cart and covering the, the throne. And you also have the living angels in Revelations with six wings. So what you've got is in the throne, you've got the Ophanium in Revelations. You've got the eyes of the Ophanium in that depiction. You've got the positioning of covering around the throne of the uh, cherubim. And then you've got six wings that were of the seraphim. It's like the three are blended into that imagery. Mm -hmm. Oh, and and I don't know whether that means because those watchers were the ones who mostly rebelled, whether or not that's kind of like a new being or they're just representing it that way as sort of one sort of on the same 
same page type of being, but there's there's definitely you don't see seraphim depicted independently. You don't see cherubim in Revelations depicted independently or the Ophanim. It's one blended being. So it's a bit of a mystery in terms of why they did that, as opposed to the Ezekiel description that specifically describes cherubim and then Ophanim. And then you have a seraphim account that shows up in other parts of the Bible, like in Isaiah six. So, Terry, uh, just out of, out of sheer curiosity, out of the, the angels, what you've um, mentioned, what is the the highest? Um, would it be, for example, would seraphim be above cherubim? Well, typically that's understood as, um, as the highest order in in the uh, ones around the throne. So the highest angelic order is the seraphim. Yeah. But there's also, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also, you know, like the four winds like, and the four angels that come out from the throne. And there, there's four angels that seem to be heading up, um, perhaps the four hierarchies, and they all seem to be archangels. Hmm. So you've got seven archangels. archangels, and then four of those seven seem to be at the head of the, the you know, the four groups of watchers. So there, there's a specific leader that seems to be an archangel. And um, uh, I presume there's uh, archdemons as well. Well, if you look at the, the host of heaven, um, that's the word Saba, T-S-A-B-A as it's transliterated into English. And that means an army and an army of angels. And so you have rank and order. Okay. So when you, when you look at the rebellious angels or the gods, they have a host as well, just as the Bible calls them the host of heaven, right? That the Israelites and other people were worshiping. So the host of heaven, um, which is Saba of heaven, I mean, sometimes they're depicted as stars and planets, but then again, gods are also um, named, have their names on those stars and planets as well, right? So yeah. you know, it's a physical sort Especially of imagery. Yeah. And then you yeah. have like the seven wandering stars, but they're also worshiping the host of heaven as gods as they're depicted. So there's several verses and they're linking both being the same. And of course, the names being used for the planets by polytheism. And so they have a host that's a Saba of rank and order as well. So we see that biblically in Psalms 82 with the Council of Gods. And that these Council of Gods, they reign over the 70 nations that is talked about in Deuteronomy 32. And so they're in charge of the whole world through a hierarchy. And so when you, you, you ask, is there a, sort of an arch angel or an arch demon? Yes. So Azazel would be one of those arch angels probably Azazel. or a seraphim, right? Mm -hmm. He might be one of them because he's, you know, you've got the um, almost like the, what is it? The tens of tens and the top seven in the book of Enoch. So you might want to sort of look in that sort of area for who those archangels are. It's not clear to me whether arch, some of the archangels um, rebelled or not. I presume 
some from each order did, but it's not clear to yeah. me that I've, I, don't, I don't have a specific verse that suggests that, but we don't get the seven archangels named in the Bible. We only get two. So does that, and, and with the Apocrypha, you get an edition of the, the old King James Bible, you get um, Uriel listed and Uriel. Raphael, four mm -hmm. of the seven. Uh, yeah, so one might suggest that they didn't rebel, but perhaps three other ones did, and why they're not named. Hmm. That's very interesting. Because, uh, I mean, you, 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 the main names you, you use, like Michael, and yep. uh, uh, that's probably the main one. Yeah, Michael and Gabriel are the two that Gabriel are mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there, um, now, there was one of the angels um, that was named Azza that was actually, Azza. yeah, that was actually rejected from paradise um, when Enoch was translated into the heavens and became Metatron, and he was cast down and became an additional fallen angel. As in, Metatron became an additional fallen angel. No, no, Azza. Aza was in yeah. the heavenly realm and when yeah. metatron came into being because god gave him such a high rank um, yeah. Aza essentially rebelled and he was cast down as well yeah and right. uh that's in third enoch, third enoch. Right. yeah yes for people who are trying to find it in first enoch there's several books there's first enoch which is the most known one there's a second book of enoch and a, a third book of enoch and then there's enoch book of giants so there's technically four books of enoch so they're all but, they're all interesting um oh, yes yeah. two two and three sort of um have a lot more polytheist references into it than than, than first enoch um, so you'll get some of the Greek gods and things like that, their names and that, that type of things, and the seven heavens and uh, things like that. So also, they've, they've actually they've merged the Greek gods into one of the Book of Enoch. That's uh, very interesting. Now, I was I was also going to say, but wasn't it Azza after he got cast out that became Azazel? Um, well. You know, it's, I mean, I would say that anything that's sort of related to Azza mm -hmm. would be um, Azazel, right? As I mean, yes. I mean, you've got Hebrew in the words, you've got Az as Az and Az Az, and both mean really strong and mighty and powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the El suffix, which is attached to all right. uh, angelic names, and so. I kind of lean heavily towards anything that's Azza would be Azazel. So uh, you have also a, and, and Azazel is also the scapegoat, so, right? Yeah, as, right? As it's trans, trans, trans. That would, make, more, that would make much more sense, yeah. Yeah, and there's another sh angel called Shemiaza. Shemiaza, I was just going to say that then, Gary. Where does Shemiaza fit into all this? Because you, you hear about him, but then you don't. Do you think this this could be the the Azazel? Do you think it's one and the same? Well, I think it is. And oh. uh, again, the first thing that you notice about Shemiaza is is that that name doesn't end in an el, which is right. really kind of odd. 
right? Oh, I, okay. When you, when you think about it, so there's it's it looks to me like it's a compound word that's uh, rooted uh, partly in um, Hebrew and and then partly comes elsewhere from um, other religions or another language and might be a corruption of of the uh, first book of Enoch. Um, and so let me sort of kind of explain where I'm coming from on that. Yeah, right. uh, um, there's a there's a thought by a lot of researchers that over time, Azazel in the first book of Enoch was split into two different angels because they have they're both looked as the leader of the angels. Um, and you also have different uh, versions of Shemayaza in there. There's several different words. You've got semi Azaz shows up in the book of Enoch, um, which is you know, ends in A-Z-A-Z, -Z, and mm -hmm. Semiaza, S-M-J-A-Z-A, -A, um, and a couple other versions. And so when you look at the word Shemiaza, uh, as spelt in this case, either uh, as S-H-E-M-Y-A-Z-A, -A, Shem is a Hebrew word, which is the singular form of heaven. Uh, which mm. is the Hebrew word Shema. Uh, and the Shema uh, in plural is Shemaim, as in heavens. So the heavenly ones, just as the seraphim are the serpentine ones and yeah, yeah. the Nephilim are the giant ones when you when you understand that I am male plural. Um, and Yaza is um, uh, a, a different kind kind of word, but it's 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 sort of as a, almost as a description. Uh, so Yaza is thought in some circles to be and coming out of Zoroastrianism, and or oh, Aramaic, and or Aramaic and or both, I guess, because mm -hmm. uh, they'd be you know all out of that same sort of part of the world. That seems to be is. Uh, uh, and and some people even say a Zend word for a heavenly being or an angel. Um, so I think that is just sort of a corruption over time um, that uh, you know was entered in. So I, I I think it should be should be anything that's Shemiaza um, should be associated with with Azazel. Hmm. And I think it, I think it's interesting too when you go back to Zoroastrianism, um, as far as him, you know, bringing forth the idea of the beginning and the end, and basically attributing a, a you know like a personal angel to every person, and and bringing in the ideas of a lot of this angelic thought. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, and. Otherwise, when if if I if I don't sort of read Enoch that way, it sort of loses its its mm. um, integrity. Like who's who's really leading the one is is, and Azazel is the one that is um, the one that's bound and 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 is called the leader of the hosts that are in the abyss, right? Yeah, so. Right. So I sort of, you know, if I have to sort of say, how do I make the hard one on that? I kind of look at it from that sort of perspective. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's I just, think uh, it's also interesting how that ties in directly into, as a, into the scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah, which, uh, 
you know, Greek god path. We've mm. uh, that's been mm. uh, connected before. Sununos as well, Gary. CERN. Yeah. What about CERN? No, it's uh-huh. just like like the, the connection with. Uh, oh, with with Azazel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, well, he is the one in the Book of Enoch who's accredited for all the sins of the ancient world as the scapegoat. He is the one that is that taught the arts of making weapons and the art of making war to to the giants. And so he is essentially the destroyer of the antediluvian world. Sounds like um, Vulcan a little bit. Yeah. And it, in the abyss is Abaddon and Apollyon. Those are titles, right. right? And they both mean in Greek and in Hebrew, the destroyer. Right. Gary, are you familiar with uh, a god? And Shiva is the destroyer angel that's associated. Right. So just to make that final connection, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a god, um, Apophis, it's spelled A-P-O-P-H-I-S. Yep. Mm. Are you are familiar with it? Yeah, Apophis, yep. Yeah, Apophis, that's it, yeah, sorry. Yep, do you have a question on Apophis? Uh, would, would Apophis be uh, like a similar god to Sununos and Apollyon? Um, not convinced of that. Ah, um, okay. Uh, I think he's a little bit different kind of uh, god in... Um, in in the Egyptian pantheon, um, I would, uh, and he's also called uh, Apep, as, Apep, as I yeah, recall, I right? And he is the uh, the god of the dark waters and chaos, right? He's that sea yes. serpent type of god and he would have had a partner that would have been a female so and that's important to understand as well because i mean all of the parent gods had you know consorts or wives just as the offspring gods did so they had a partner and so tiamat would be a similar type of goddess and apsu would be tiamat. yeah tiamat would be very similar as a female, Apsu would be the male. Apophis or Apep is the male god of the, of the dark water. So this is a Leviathan type of creature, a ah, Lotan, yeah, yeah. right? Um, a little, so there's several different names for um, this type of being that's around the world. Like in uh, the Norse, it would be the uh, Mid, Midgard summer or the Lomangard. I think I butchered that I one. Know what you mean. Oh, it's like the world Dante. serpent. Yeah, yeah. It's like the world. Yeah, yeah. I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah, I, I struggle with those two. <laughs> the Kisha Maya have uh, Tepu and Gukamets. Uh, you've got Lotan. You've got Yam. You've got Ahi. You've got Verta. Um, all different cultures around the world talk about these two creator gods that are serpentine sea monsters and the female is killed so tiamat which is female is uh, killed is killed yeah mm-hmm. tiamat is one of the ones who creates all of these creatures all sorts of uh like hairy giants and heroes and scorpion beings that uh 
uh, very mm -hmm. and they're identical to those scorpion beings that come out of the abyss and she, she creates these beings to protect the parent gods from the offspring gods who are the ones who are in polytheism going to kill the, the parent gods but even in the bible you have leviathan, leviathan one of them being killed yeah. uh, by god and then yeah. one is destroyed in the end time and that's the male so yeah i would say it's a it's it's maybe more akin to an allegory for satan than anything else right really ah Very well the two leviathans within the bible you have the curved leviathan and you have the pointed leviathan and in in certain ways i think the curved leviathan um, when it was killed and salted, I think that that female energy basically kind of became matter itself. Sorry, Robert, did you just say it was it was killed and salted? Salted, salted as in, yeah, yeah. As in, like, it's, it's been preserved. Preserved, right, for a, a feast at the end, <laughs> at the end of time. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It really is. It's... Uh... Gary, why does this always happen? You just like melt me brain from, from as soon as we start. <laughs> now, Gary, I have, I have a question for you. How much would all this tie into um, Typhon and the Harpies? Um, out of Greek mythology. Well, I would, you know, I think there's a relationship there, but I think the Leviathans would fit more with the Hydras. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, basically, in terms of a similar you know, type of. Yeah, as far anyways, as the yeah. beings we were talking about before, yeah. the the vampiric type. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't made. I I can't say I've done research that I've found that's connected the the sort of vampire aspect back into uh, Typhon. Um, so I, I can't really speak to that, but uh, something to, to chase down. There must be something there if you're bringing it up that you might be aware of. Yeah, it was just uh, some of the some of the instances you were describing as far as characteristics. Um, I just kind of kept teeing on the ideas of uh, Typhon, um, which relate back to Set, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Set. Which would be the uh, the opposition of Osiris, his brother, who who slayed him, um, and then there was the war between Set and Horus later on. It's a Satan-like character, and a lot of people in their research would say that the word Satan would be sourced through the word Set. Right. Right. Also, that that could potentially be uh, one and the same. Um, yeah, I, but I would, I would caution that. I would say it might be a mirror of what happened earlier, because again, mm -hmm. Osiris is an offspring god uh, after the flood, uh, versus you know the parent gods of the Ogdo gods and you know gods like Ra and Ta yeah. were ruling before the flood. So, but what typically happens in uh, the, with the offspring gods is because you have that army, right? That mm -hmm. rank and file, that they would move up and take all of the same positions and probably accept the mythos of, of or the history of the god that they replaced. 
And in the Greek mythology, I think there's a classic example of that. And that's where you have um, Poseidon, who is the uh, god of Atlantis, but Atlantis seems yeah. to be an antediluvian uh, right. city. Right. Uh, and Poseidon, you know, he, through Clido, he creates giants. Well, the god that he took over from was Iapetus. Iapetus. Yeah. Uh, and he created gods like Gog, Magog, and Albion. And, ah, right, right. And he's the god of the sea, and he's the parent god. So it seems to me that I mean, maybe Iapetus was likely the god of Atlantis. And then after the rebellion or the fallen angels went to the abyss, depending on what belief system you come out of, the offspring gods, in this case Poseidon, um, are raised up to take their places and assume the same tradition as the God before. Hmm. Right. You know, you have the same story with Zeus, right? Taking over from Kronos, right? Kronos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have the same story with Anki and Anlil taking over from the parent gods of Anu and where Tiamat came true. from. Yeah. Yeah. You have Baal, that's the son of El. El was the parent god before the flood. Yeah. Baal and Mot are the offspring gods after the flood. And the Baalim that are talked about in the Ugaritic texts and walked amongst the humans after the flood for a short time. So there seems to be either they did actually kill those parent gods in, in every culture around the world, mm -hmm. or they just moved up because the, the those fallen yeah. angels biblical perspective would be in the abyss yeah now the we were talking about a um what was it apophis just a second ago um now how much and we're talking about the idea of killing off the old gods and the new gods coming in um how much would that relate to the idea of apotheosis uh of raising people up to be gods to be gods like we do now yep. with napoleon yep. and george washington and yep well yeah. That would be in the tradition uh, that the demigods would look to, right? So after the flood, you have the offspring of of the uh, offspring giants, and they're called demigods, and they're worshipped as um, devil gods and and demon right. gods even after they die. Right. Uh, that's where hero worship comes from in in the Greek mythology as well, and other traditions around the world. So they're raised they raise not only themselves up to be gods as the divine representatives of their parents on the earth. Mm. Um, and so they would be raised up. And then you would have the bloodlines of those right. people who are raised up to be leaders of nations and kings. And so when you have like the apotheosis in, in Washington, where you have on the roof with George Washington and stuff, that they would be reincarnated like Osiris would be into into godhood right and then right, up into right, the heavens right. and um now we were talking as far as hero worship the idea of the hero which nimrod was called a hero um and it i've also read that the row in the hero is where we get the uh root of the royalty um in regard to the french row or royal line um certainly yeah, certainly, and also through, also through um, 
Indo-Aryan. You have uh, similar translations, more of a Ru, uh, mm -hmm. R-U, but that's just a sort of different sort of transliteration. So, yeah, I mean, so you have that sort of connection of where um, the Royale would come from. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, you have that as a hero part connected like of, of a warrior as a demigod. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have the AL, which is the EL transliteration. Mm. Right. So uh, you have like Baal is a god, right? It should be actually yeah. EL yeah, from a yeah. Hebrew perspective. Uh, so AL is a common uh, transliteration for a god or an angel, just as IL is or ILU is um, in in Mesopotamia. And you could use AL as the female to be ALLAH in the in the female format, yeah. just as uh, you'd have E-L-A-A-H in um, the female format, which means more power than anything in its application, mm -hmm. but it could refer to a goddess as well in the same mm -hmm. sort of kind of application. So, yeah, so you've got that sort of connection of, of that. And also, you know, when you look at that name Herodian, I mean, nice. he's the bloodline of the Edomites, and that 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 is rooted in hero as well. Mm. And now, in any way, would that carry over into the the name of Rhodes? Uh, yeah, you know, I haven't done an etymology. etymology I'm just thinking, you know, as far as the foundation that, but... of Rome and how that kind of carries over. Uh, yes, yes. I love this, Robert. Just, um, just you know, shaking some of the some of the lines here. <laughs> all roads lead to Rome. Roads. Yeah. yeah. R H O D E S was yeah. in the place. Roads. Yeah. And I got that from Amy's research. She's she does. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's it's definitely interesting when you start walking down these different uh, etymological paths. Fascination. Yeah, I mean, you know, things that were named in the past, they're named for a reason. Right. And so uh, you, definite, you definitely have those uh, patrially named cities and places and you have eponymously named tribes and mm. you've got words that when you start tracing their etymology back, they go back to essentially you know, a lot of the words essentially that maintain through the different languages the same etymological roots relates to the the governing class right the elect yeah the elect all the select yeah well and like you were saying roy al would be the hero elect almost you know of of the royale line yep. yeah yeah very interesting Oh, for sure, mate, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Gary, do you think that there's, I mean, is there anything else you think could uh, could fit into tonight's absolutely phenomenal episode? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I think we've kind of, I'm not... I think we've kind of covered it all. I'm not sure what we would have missed because I think we were talking. Oh. The base subject was oopiers. Yeah, and, and we've uh, gone all over uh, everything. Well, 
And yeah. uh, one more one more thing to kind of bring up when we start looking at um, current um, King Charles the Third, he has said that he's directly related to Vlad the Impaler. Um, yes. He's gone to the castle as well as George um, W. Bush said he was related to Vlad the Impaler as well at one point. So we're we're having these people in constant positions of the elect claiming their lineage back to these ancient Scythian dragon bloodlines um, carrying forth through the Royale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got a point there, mate. Hey, that's well, he's my uncle. Vlad the Impaler is my uncle now. So, <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, well, very- and, and Bush is also takes his bloodlines back to uh, the Plantagenet and King John, which yeah. is a junior house of the Anjou. Mm. So, so back to the French again, huh? Back to well, in the Anjou, I mean, they take their bloodlines back to Scythia and to Samaria as well, and Anjou with the A N in their mythos as part of that, um, you know, patronymically accepted uh, surname, right? Right, right. Whether or not whether or not that's true or not, that's what they say. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Gabby, I can't thank you enough for blowing my mind yet again. That was incredible. Um, be- before you go, uh, would you like to let everybody know where they can get hold of you, please? And plug you, you, is there any progress with your new book? Yeah, I'm still in the proofread of it, so I'm... We're nearly there then, mate. What's that? (laughs) Nearly there. (laughs) Um, So I'm on chapter 75 of the proofread of 84, so I'm hoping in the next month I get it off to the the publishers and uh, we'll have it out uh, later this year and... It's going to be called the Genesis uh, 6 Conspiracy Part 2, how understanding prehistory and Raphaim helps understand helps to understand end time prophecy. Mm. Congratulations, mate. Uh, that's going to be some but when you bring it out, eh? You can yeah, already tell. Yeah, I, uh, I think it, I, and I'm, pre- I'm pretty happy with it. So. You know, one of the things is when you're reading it and you read it so many times, if you still find it interesting as you're working through it and you're reading it, um, that, that's usually a pretty good sign. So I bet, mate, I bet. Yeah, mate, so would you like to let everybody know uh get hold of you, please, mate? Yep, you can get a hold of me and the, the book will, the new book will be marketed in the same uh, location as with the first book. And the best way to get a hold of me is on that website, the Genesis six conspiracy.com. That's Genesis six with the number six conspiracy.com. And on there, there is a contact the author button. So if you wanted to ask me uh, a question, um, uh, you can get a hold of me for if you're interested in a little bit deeper information. I have a document on that subject. I'll send that to you at no charge. Uh, so that's the best way to get a hold of me, and also the best way to buy my books. So if you're interested in my book, you can also read a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the website, uh, and you'll get a good feel for 
the book, whether or not it's the book for you. Um, and if you do, then you can buy a signed copy from me and I have a page for overseas. I have a page for the US and a page for Canada. So that's the easiest way to get a hold of my book. You can also link over from the website on the buy now page to the Kindle version if you want a digital copy. And you can also link to barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com and amazon.ca. Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. Um, thanks again, Gary, mate. Uh, Robbie, before you go, mate, point. would you like to let everybody uh, when get oldie, please, mate? Yeah, um, I now have the Meta Mindcast, M E T T A Mindcast, all one word. Um, and then if you just Google R Marks, M A R X, artist, um, I'm out there. I'm on pretty much every platform, and uh, it should be pretty easy to find me. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, gentlemen. Um, I, I don't. There's no other word to. Um, there's no other word than fascination that I can think of from what we just experienced. Um, it's every episode we do, Gary. It's just, it's better than the last, and and that is a huge compliment, mate. Um, <laughs> that was incredible. Thank you. Yeah, well, I love walking down these roads. Yeah, my yeah. pleasure. It's been it's been a lot of fun. So, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, so I want to stop recording now. Thanks again, gentlemen. That was, yeah. that was incredible. Thank you. This six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.